This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. A new survey released by Statistics Canada shows nearly all Canadians have come across COVID-19 misinformation online since the start of the pandemic. And over half of Canadians have shared that information without ever fully knowing if the source behind it was accurate. The survey published February 2nd shows that the COVID-19 pandemic has come with what they are calling an infodemic, an overabundance of information, some true, some false. The Canadian Parliament is set to resume this week, and it's a safe bet that internet regulation will be part of the legislative agenda in the coming months. Whether the return of Bill C-10 or reforms targeting online harms, Canadians will be actively engaged on how to balance internet regulation and freedom of expression. One of the toughest policy issues involves misinformation, which can be difficult to define and potentially to regulate. The Canadian Commission on Democratic Expression was established in the spring of 2020 with a three-year mandate to better understand, anticipate, and respond to the effects of new digital technologies on public life and Canadian democracy. As part of its work, it created a Citizens' Assembly comprised of Canadians from across the country who recently gathered for several days in Ottawa to debate disinformation online. Last week, I was honoured to deliver a dinner speech to the group, followed by a facilitated discussion. This week's podcast features a recording of that lecture with the slides posted to my website. Thank you very much for both the invitation and the uh, opportunity to speak. I was just telling my table mate, this is quite literally the first time I've spoken and spoken face to face um, since the pandemic began. Our university has been pretty uh, cautious about reopening. We have some in person, but uh, I've been limited to, as so many people are, just a myriad of Zoom classes and Zoom lectures and Zoom meetings. Uh, And so it is so awesome to actually uh, be able to do this face-to-face and not just have the chance to speak, but to have the chance to engage as well. Uh, And this, uh, I know you've been here since uh, early this morning, so um, so that's a lot, but I've also heard that it's been a a really um, exciting, engaging uh, conversation about some of these issues, which is really fantastic. And so hopefully this provides a bit of a contribution and an opportunity to continue a bit of the dialogue uh, post-dinner. So as you can see, I, I've titled the talk Misinformation and Freedom of Expression. Is there a Made in Canada solution? Which I take in some ways as some of the kinds of things that you're focusing on. I'm going to be a bit critical about some of the kinds of things we've seen from the government so far. Uh, but I want to at least start by emphasizing and recognizing that, and as, as based on even some of the things that you've heard over the course of the day, it is very clear that there are real issues and real problems to be dealt with. And so to criticize some of the approaches that we have seen either here or in other jurisdictions is not to suggest that there isn't a need for action, uh, but rather to suggest that we need to be careful about how we go about taking action. And of course, when we look at what has taken place, both in our own country and in many others, I think it becomes readily apparent that there are real world consequences to misinformation, to disinformation, uh, however you choose to define the two, particularly as linked to social media. We've seen it 
most notably, I think, for many over the last number of years with respect to, or the last year, year and a half or so, with respect to COVID-19, which has evolved in a number of different ways, but we've seen it. We also know that the, the reality is that while this information spreads, it doesn't need a large number of people necessarily to be the source. We've had one study that indicated that there were just 12 people that were largely responsible for much of the information around vaccine hoaxes on social media. It's remarkable that kind of spread, which of course is why there have been these concerns about how, how rapidly and how broadly some of this information can spread. And there are unquestionably concerns about the response that we've seen from some of the large platforms. A study that was conducted by CBC Marketplace found that they identified hundreds of social media posts and uh, with respect to COVID misinformation and, and found that only a small fraction were actually removed. That's an area, as we'll talk about in a few minutes, that remains, I think, in the view of many, still too opaque. It is not clear in many instances why something is removed and other things may not be removed. And it, of course, is not, as you just heard even in the intro, not limited by any means, certainly just to COVID-19. We see some of these same kinds of concerns arising with respect to health information, with respect to climate change and some of the issues around the environment. We see it, of course, with respect to elections and election coverage around some of these issues. And we see it in everyday corporate uh, financial life. Uh, where companies are concerned, users are concerned. These are the kinds of issues in terms of the sort of information that we get uh, that has, I think, rightly sparked a great deal of attention. I think it's also fair to say, and I'm sure it became clear over the course of the day, that there are no easy solutions. There are trade-offs. There are different values that we can all have around these issues. But finding ways to ensure that they get reflected uh, in a manner that is both effective, but at the same time ensuring that we remain true to some of the other important values is exceptionally difficult to do. I wanted to, to start before getting into, I guess, some of my own take about some of the things that I think we ought to do by emphasizing three broad points. The first is that this is not just about big tech and that we cannot solve these issues solely by focusing on the large internet platforms and thinking that if we deal with them that this will be solved. Now I have to say that it feels as if from a governmental perspective that's often been how this issue has been framed. The government has often, or at least in the last couple of years, once these issues began to attract significant amount of attention, began to truly emphasize that we were going to war in a sense with big tech, it was seen as politically advantageous I think to do so, uh, and so we've seen it not only uh, in this area, but in the cultural sector and uh, taxation and just a whole range of areas where opposing some of these companies was seen as, uh, as, 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 a, as a good political thing to do at a minimum. And, and some would certainly argue the right policy move as well. Yet if we take a look at some of the underlying studies, we know that it isn't just about big tech. A notable study from Yochai Benkler at Harvard University that took a look at disinformation around mail-in voting during the U.S. election found that it wasn't the platforms that was the primary source of the disinformation. It was the President of the United States, Donald Trump. And naturally enough, uh, a president is going to get widespread media coverage, whether online or offline. And solving the platform issue in that instance did not solve the underlying problem of the source of much of that disinformation. 
In fact, there are significant numbers of studies that do point to the fact that mainstream media is still, of course, an enormously influential voice here. It isn't just the platforms at all in the United States, for example. It's the Fox Newses and other kinds of those sources that are often the initial amplification uh, of this information, well beyond just social media. In fact, a study from 2020 found that while the source that where people were getting their information from, while it is true they were getting more information than had been previously the case from what were viewed as unreliable sources, as you can see from this slide, the reality is that people are getting far more information from credible sources as well. They're just getting a lot more information. I think a lot of us increasingly feel like it's information overload regardless of the source. The data suggests, though, that there is still a large amount of information, lar the largest percentage is still coming from credible sources, and where there are sources that are not credible, or there are credible sources that may provide misinformation in instances, that impact is arguably even larger than the impact that might come from some of the large platforms. In fact, it's also worth noting that the government itself, I would argue, at a minimum, sends somewhat mixed signals on some of these issues. This is a page from the Facebook advertising database. And we'll talk a bit about transparency with respect to advertising in a few minutes. But Facebook has a, a, has a database in which all political advertisements are listed. These are advertisements from the Liberal Party and Justin Trudeau's Facebook page, which started running two days ago. In fact, we are seeing continual advertising being run on these platforms at the very time that the government often criticizes those same platforms. Now, I think you can make a credible case that advertising is designed to reach people, and if people are on these platforms, then, then you ought to be advertising there. But we ought not to mistake the, uh, the, the, the reality that at, while at one hand we have governments criticizing these platforms, and on the other hand, we have the same governments or political parties making active use. In fact, it was the Liberal Party that spent far more on Facebook advertising during the last campaign than any of the other parties at the same time as they were actively and still actively criticize some of those same platforms. Secondly, freedom of expression, as I'm sure was uh, a subject of discussion over the course of the day, exceptionally difficult. And I wanted to, to get at it from two perspectives, both the implications of government policy and secondly, the implications of the tech, the tech companies' policies. From a government policy perspective, we have seen governments around the world endeavor to address these issues. Sometimes, as in the case from this graphic in Canada, um, with task forces to study the issue, but in many instances with actual legislation. And I think that we have now enough information to know that particularly in the wrong hands, this kind of legislation has very negative consequences, indeed dire consequences for freedom of expression. We've seen it in countries around the world that have endeavored to deal with false news or misinformation, and invariably we find that there are governments that, I would argue, misuse that those very laws. And just, to, I mean, just, there are many, many examples. We see it coming from Asia with using these laws as a clampdown on freedom of expression. There was Thailand, the same in Indonesia, where those same laws have been used to silence criticism of the government itself. In Turkey, people being detained over so-called provocative COVID posts. In Bahrain, it's not just COVID, a lawyer charged with sharing 
fake news from some of his tweets. And lest we think that it's just countries that we might say are, uh, are, are less fulsome in their embrace of democratic ideals, this is from France, which has a, had a fake news law and found that some of the government's own advertising had to be taken down because it violated some of its own rules. In Italy, as you can see, a man was sentenced to nine months in jail for posting fake reviews on TripAdvisor. Once you put this legislation in place without the effective kind of boundaries um, about what it is you are indeed targeting, the ability for scope creep in terms of how far it goes and the implications for basic freedom of expression can be very real. We see some of the dangers as well, I would argue, when it comes to the company's implementation of these policies, the companies being urged to take action when it comes to, um, when it comes to behavior that violates their rules. And so what do you end up with? You end up with the finance minister's own tweets being labeled as manipulative uh, during the last election campaign. The, at the same time, we've seen MP, MPs or MPPs on both sides of the aisle also finding that their accounts suspended over some of their tweets. This isn't partisan in the sense of who is targeted. This can affect people from across the political spectrum, whether the left or the right. It's happening to academics. My colleague uh, Amir Adaran found himself banned from Twitter for saying that the prime minister ought to be tarred and feathered based on some of his vaccine policies. Lots of people take issue with uh, Professor Adaran, but the notion that somehow this was a violation that merited being kicked off Twitter um, for a period of time strikes, I think many is absurd. We've seen it play out, as I say, on, on many, many occasions. Here's, a, here's an author who was also, um, also kicked off Twitter, in this case, for misgendering trans people in, in a particular post. And so it happens across the spectrum. And it's not just Twitter. Even on areas that can be controversial, Facebook, for example, and all the platforms were urged to find ways to block content when there was discussions around the source of the, of the coronavirus, of COVID-19. And so for a time, they were actually blocking posts that, that raised questions as to whether or not this might have been man-made and actually leaked. Eventually they relented and allowed that discussion to take place. But whether or not that is truly as part of a discussion, um, misinformation such that it ought to be blocked, I think is, is a challenging question. We've seen YouTube block videos that raise some of the same kinds of things around vaccination and questions around vaccination. And while presumably everyone in this room is nobody's wearing masks and is vaccinated, the idea that none of these issues can even be discussed uh, and get automatically removed once you put on, put charge these companies with the responsibility to take action, I think has significant implications clearly for freedom of expression. Now, thirdly, there's the response we have seen from the federal government. And I would argue that it raises some significant red flags. The so-called internet regulation plan, and we will see how it plays out uh, under this new government with mandate letters to come very, very soon in Parliament to start next week, included three main areas. Bill C-10, which sought to address broadcasting regulation, a consultation on online harms that you may have already been heard and discussed today, and the prospect of paying news media for links. Um, we'll leave the news media issue to the side and focus on the other two for the moment. The broadcasting bill was initially designed, and if you talk to supporters, they will tell you still designed 
although the bill doesn't, doesn't exist at this stage, to target online streaming services such as, such as Netflix and Disney, arguing that they ought to pay into a fund to help create Canadian content. Over time, though, that bill, which would seemingly for many be uncontroversial, was ultimately described in the Senate as Orwellian, with the Senator David Adams Richards from New Brunswick, a well-known author, saying that this legislation ought to have a stake through the heart in it, uh, talking about its implications for freedom of expression. Why? Because not only were the Netflixes of the world regulated by this service, but so too was the prospect of regulating user-generated content. Those that are uncomfortable with government saying that you shouldn't see something are often going to be equally uncomfortable with government saying that you must see something or must prioritize certain kinds of speech as well. There's also the consultation on online harms, which as I say, I suspect you've had some amount of discussion with about. It proposes a range of different measures, including 24-hour takedowns of content, which I would argue prioritizes speed over accuracy. We know from experience in other jurisdictions that that kind of approach means that lawful content is likely to be removed. It thinks they think of proactive monitoring, which essentially builds in artificial intelligence, AI, into the monitoring process with the prospect of automated uh, references or auto automated reporting back to the police. Many of the groups who are themselves concerned about online hate and misinformation are equally concerned with the bias that may exist within AI and oftentimes have a challenging at best relationship with law enforcement such that the prospect that a potentially biased AI system would identify content and then proactively report that person to the police is exceptionally troubling, yet that's precisely what the government proposed as part of its legislative um, package. It talks about website blocking, with the possibility of mandating all ISPs to have blocking capability, so that if sites themselves were unwilling to abide by these Canadian rules, they could ultimately be blocked or ordered to be blocked by all internet providers across the country. And on top of all of that, broad enforcement powers uh, from an investigative perspective. So that's what the government says they have in mind with respect to these online harms. Um, I obviously have a view and you kind of can get a sense of it based on the way I've described what they have in mind. But I think it is fair to say that what, from what we do know, and I should add a, add a caveat, that the government has refused to disclose the submissions that they received as part of this public consultation. It was a public consultation launched over the summer, uh, concluded just after the election, and they say they will not disclose uh, the submissions unless compelled to do so under access to information rules. Now, there are other groups that have actually made their submissions available, and what we find are that groups from across the political spectrum, whether it is uh, groups like Open Media, and I understand you heard from Laura Tribe earlier today, um, but groups including the independent press, groups that are focused on anti-racism, all pointing to the concerns that the very legislation designed to help them could ultimately harm them. In fact, we have seen groups outside the country pointing to some of the kinds of issues we've seen, as I highlighted a bit earlier, uh, with respect to uh, the implications for expression when you bring these rules into place and say for Canada, to put those kinds of rules in place to be a model for those other countries to say, well, if Canada does these kinds of takedowns or police reporting, why shouldn't we? 
And so there are, I would argue, serious risks with where we have seen the government move forward, both with respect to our moral standing and freedom of expression, but also, I think, ironically enough, in terms of increased dependence on the tech companies themselves. If we escalate the requirements at such a level that only the largest of the companies are actually able to have the resources to deal with these issues, we consign ourselves to a world where it is only the largest companies that we actually are able to choose from. And the ability for new, new companies and new choices to emerge in the marketplace becomes exceptionally difficult because the regulatory barriers to comply become too high. I would argue it is no coincidence that Facebook now says, uh, bring on the regulation, we're all for it. They're all for regulation if it means that many other players simply won't be able to comply and it will leave the playing field alone for a handful of companies. Well, is there a better approach? Uh, I think, naturally enough, there is, uh, and I will quickly give you a few, of, a few of my thoughts there and then make sure that we turn over as much time as possible to uh, actual conversation. Uh, the first, I think we have to emphasize transparency, and transparency in a number of different ways. The advertising example, I think, is a really good one. And so, in advance of the 2019 election campaign, there were serious concerns with respect to foreign interference with elections. And one of the arguments was, if we create legislation that mandate that the large platforms provide or disclose full information on political advertising, that ray of sunshine or that transparency will have an impact on the kinds of ads that we see. And it turns out that it was right, that that hypothesis worked. Some of the platforms said they simply could not or would not comply with the rules, and so they eliminated this kind of advertising altogether. In other instances, Google is an example of that. In other instances, Facebook, for example, did build the database. And the fact, and I highlighted it just a moment ago, and the fact that these ads would be made available and people could see what, what people were spending, what the ad said, who they were targeting, a whole range of different pieces of information, suddenly meant that some would-be advertisers that might have sought to influence public opinion, potentially even through misinformation, suddenly knew that this would be outed and readily available to all. And if you take a look at the kind of ads that have taken place, it essentially cleaned up the neighborhood in a fairly significant way. Political parties still making active use of these platforms, but we don't see some of the other third-party misinformation stuff that we once feared would exist, largely because they're going to be outed. We clearly need more transparency when it comes to algorithms. If 12 people can be the source of spreading all of this kind of information, the issue isn't necessarily the initial source, it is how it spreads. And so better understanding how that takes place under a clear mandate, because the companies have shown themselves willing at times to disclose some, but definitely not all. And so we need to find ways that uh, is, are sensitive to certainly commercial considerations, but at the same time recognize that there is a public interest here that really requires far more transparency about how these choices get made, how information gets prioritized. I think we need far more transparency both with respect to the policies and how decisions are made. Now that's not to say that you can't go on a platform and find what their community guidelines are or what some of their policies are. But how they get enforced, how they get used remains exceptionally opaque. 
Sometimes content comes down. Sometimes people are kicked off the service for a period of time, and sometimes they're not. And rarely, even when people do submit and raise concerns, do they get any sort of response to have an understanding of what actually has taken place. We have to do better, these companies have to do better, and we arguably need rules to ensure and require that they do. I think the companies have to step up with greater responsibility. That includes codes of conduct and community guidelines, but notably, again, to pick up on this issue of transparency, far more transparent enforcement. It can't feel like a guessing game to know when uh, a company responded and when it didn't, um, and how, in what way they responded on which issues. It need, we need to recognize the impact this is having, and it needs to have far more openness associated with it. I would argue we need to ensure that these companies do not profit from misinformation. The advertising databases is one mechanism to help ensure that that's the case, but ensuring that there is not advertising that runs against some of this kind of content is, of course, the other way. Now, I think I will take many of the companies at their word that they are not interested in profiting from this kind of content. They're making plenty of money without profiting from anti-vax type content, let's say. But what we need, I would argue, is to ensure clear rules that you simply can't. And because once you establish some of those requirements, it seems to me far more likely that we'll get broader, more uniform compliance. I think the companies can also contribute financially to some of these goals. Now, the government has sometimes looked at these companies as a bit of a policy ATM, um, where there's all kinds of money to be withdrawn for whatever your pet project happens to be. You want money for new Canadian content? Let's create a law that requires these companies to pay. You want money for a full regulatory system to enforce against these companies? Let's get the companies to fund it. Now, I have problems in some instances with, you, with using this kind of approach, this sort of cross-sector subsidy model. But in this instance, not only do I think we need algorithmic transparency, but we ought to ensure that there is appropriate funding to ensure that the research around these issues takes place. And I see little reason to suggest that the company shouldn't be the ones to fund it. In fact, I'd go further and say that since some of these content moderation edge cases are exceptionally difficult, they ought to be funding some of those challenges as well. Essentially, it's sort of like the courts program that we have, ensure that these cases actually do go forward and there are the resources to make them happen and put it all at arm's length. As long as we have a system in which there are requirements to disclose the algorithms and a system in which there are resources to ensure that there can be research associated with it and the companies can't themselves influence some of those outcomes, I think we really do move the ball a little bit forward when it comes to some of these issues. That said, I'm a law professor, so there's always going to be some laws here, and I think there needs to be greater accountability, including the prospect of greater liability. Now, clearly, legal liability for violations, you violate the law and there should be liability associated with that, but I think we ought to entertain the possibility of some kind of liability for failure to effectively enforce or implement policies. In the United States, they don't have a national privacy law in the way that we have, but what they do have is an act that is enforced by the Federal Trade Commission, the FTC, 
And the approach that the FTC takes is that it says if you have a privacy policy and you make a commitment to your users about what you will do, what you are going to collect, and how you will use or disclose that information, you are responsible to live up to those promises. And if you fail to do so, that can be a violation of the FTC Act, a violation of the law. I think we could entertain something somewhat similar here. If you've got policies about what you will take down and how you will act and how you will respond to certain kinds of online harms or misinformation, if you fail to do so, um, there ought to be some, some consequences associated with that. And similarly, there clearly ought to be consequences for appropriate, for failures to disclose where appropriate, the transparency and disclosure requirements. We see it in the world of, of securities law where there are mandated disclosures of publicly traded companies. We can have the same kinds of rules with mandated disclosures around some of these issues. There's more, even more legal reform, if you like that. Um, there, are, there is un underlying so much of this is our personal information, is our data. And our rules are simply not fit for purpose when it comes to some of these issues. We have our current privacy law at the federal level dates back now more than 20 years. Um, and the government oddly prioritized things like Netflix taxes over our own personal information, introducing a bill uh, that was designed to update the privacy law, but never really moved forward in any significant way. So I think we need privacy and data governance. We need to think about platform liability related issues, but recognize that when we start making, it's one thing to make platforms liable or responsible for failing to act where they've got these guidelines. It's quite another to say you are going to be liable directly for the content. We charge you to be the content moderator. That vests an enormous amount of power and as we have seen, creates significant amount of risks requiring within any of those rules, clear safeguards and protections for freedom of expression. And to the extent to which we venture into content, I'd argue that we ought to be focusing on the foundational concerns, whether that's privacy or competition or some of the other issues we've talked about. But to the extent to which we move into content, it has to be limited to clearly, I think, unlawful content when it comes to, to takedowns. Moving into other areas raises all sorts of constitutional concerns. And finally, there is individual responsibility here too. It isn't just the platforms, it isn't just some of the other sources. And if we are going to think about a rule that start, that moves us down the road of holding people liable for misinformation, recognize not only how challenging that is from a freedom of expression perspective, um, but the chilling effect that that might have on people knowing that uh, something I say could raise different kinds of liability. And so then we've got to think about what the component parts might be Things like that, the, uh, there's got to be a knowledge factor that it's knowingly false with an intent, I would argue, to deceive or to harm, and with information that a reasonable person simply wouldn't find credible. That's a pretty high threshold if we start incorporating some of those kinds of rules, but to, to fail to set a high threshold would, have, would, I think, not only run counter to our fundamental values around freedom of expression, but have an exceptionally chilling effect when it comes to speech. And so let me just conclude by saying, yes, the harms are real, but so too is the harm from poorly conceived legislative reform. And so that, makes, that leaves us sort of back where we started. Um, an exceptional challenge, one in which we've got to try to find some kind of Canadian type of solution, one in which 
we reflect all of those values. I know you've been talking about it for much of the day, uh, and I can't wait to see what you ultimately come up with, because I, I have some potential approaches, but I don't think anybody has all the answers. Thank you so much for your attention. Thank you, Michael. That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to lawbites at pobox.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at lawbitespod or Michael Geist at mgeist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The Law Bites podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron LeBoy. Music by the LeBoy brothers, Gerardo and Jose LeBron LeBoy. Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist. Thanks for listening and see you next time.